0: Chapter Twelve of Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Reichert Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic, by Benedetto Croce, translated by Douglas Ainsley, eighteen sixty-five to nineteen forty-eight. CHAPTER Twelve, THE AESTHETIC OF THE SYMPATHETIC AND Pseudo-aesthetic CONCEPTS Pseudo-aesthetic concepts and the aesthetic of the sympathetic. The doctrine of the sympathetic, very often animated and seconded in this by the capricious metaphysical and mystical aesthetic, and by that blind tradition which assumes an intimate connection between things by chance treated of together by the same authors and in the same books, has introduced and rendered familiar in systems of aesthetic a series of concepts of which one example suffices to justify our resolute expulsion of them from our own treatise their catalogue is long not to say interminable tragic comic sublime pathetic moving sad ridiculous melancholy comic, humoristic majestic dignified serious grave imposing, noble, decorous, graceful, attractive, piquant, coquettish, idyllic, elegiac, cheerful, violent, ingenuous, cruel, base, horrible, disgusting, dreadful, nauseating, the list can be increased at will. Since that doctrine took as its special object the sympathetic, it was naturally unable to neglect any of the varieties of this, or any of the combinations or gradations which lead at last from the sympathetic to the antipathetic. And seeing that the sympathetic content was held to be the beautiful, and the antipathetic the ugly, the varieties—tragic, comic, sublime, pathetic, etc.—constituted for it the shades and gradations intervening between the beautiful and the ugly." CRITIQUE OF THE THEORY OF THE UGLY IN ART AND OF THE UGLY SURMOUNTED Having enumerated and defined, as well as it could, the chief among these varieties, the aesthetic of the sympathetic set itself the problem of the place to be assigned to the ugly in art. This problem is without meaning for us, who do not recognize any ugliness, save the anti-aesthetic or inexpressive, which can never form part of the aesthetic fact, being, on the contrary, its antithesis. But the question for the doctrine which we are here criticising was to reconcile in some way the false and effective idea of art from which it started, reduced to the representation of the agreeable, with effective art, which occupies a far wider field. Hence the artificial attempt to settle what examples of the ugly, antipathetic, could be admitted in artistic representation and for what reasons, and in what ways? The answer was that the ugly is admissible only when it can be overcome, an unconquerable ugliness such as the disgusting or the nauseating being altogether excluded. Further, that the duty of the ugly, when admitted in art, is to contribute towards heightening the effect of the beautiful, sympathetic, by producing a series of contrasts From which the pleasurable shall issue more efficacious and pleasure giving. It is, in fact, a common observation that pleasure is more vividly felt when it has been preceded by abstinence or by suffering. Thus, the ugly in art was looked upon as the servant of the beautiful, its stimulant and condiment. That special theory of hedonistic refinement, which used to be pompously called the surmounting of the ugly falls with the general theory of the sympathetic, and with it the enumeration and the definition of the concepts mentioned above remain completely excluded from aesthetic. For aesthetic does not recognize the sympathetic or the antipathetic in their varieties, but only the spiritual activity of the representation. Pseudo-aesthetic concepts belong to psychology, However, the large space which, as we have said, those concepts have hitherto occupied in aesthetic treatises, makes opportune a rather more copious explanation of what they are. What will be their lot? As they are excluded from aesthetic, in what other part of philosophy will they be received? Truly, in none, all those concepts are without philosophical value, They are nothing but a series of classes, which can be bent in the most various ways and multiplied at pleasure, to which it is sought to reduce the infinite complications and shadings of the values and disvalues of life. Of those classes, there are some that have an especially positive significance, like the beautiful, the sublime, the majestic, the solemn, the serious, the weighty, the noble, the elevated, others have a significance especially negative like the ugly the horrible the dreadful the tremendous the monstrous the foolish the extravagant in others prevails a mixed significance as is the case with the comic the tender the melancholy the humorous the tragicomic. the complications are infinite because the individuations are infinite hence it is not possible to construct the concepts save in the arbitrary and approximate manner of the natural sciences whose duty it is to make as good a plan as possible of that reality which they cannot exhaust by enumeration nor understand and surpass speculatively and since psychology is the naturalistic discipline which undertakes to construct types and plans of the spiritual processes of man of which, in fact, it is always accentuating in our day the merely empirical and descriptive character, these concepts do not appertain to aesthetic, nor, in general, to philosophy. They must simply be handed over to psychology. Impossibility of Rigoristic Definitions of Them As is the case with all other psychological constructions, so is it with those concepts. No rigorous definitions are possible and consequently the one cannot be deduced from the other and they cannot be connected in a system as has nevertheless often been attempted at great waste of time and without result but it can be claimed as possible to obtain apart from philosophical definitions recognized as impossible empirical definitions universally acceptable as true since there does not exist a unique definition of a given fact but innumerable definitions can be given of it, according to the cases and the objects for which they are made, so it is clear that if there were only one, and that the true one, this would no longer be an empirical, but a rigorous and philosophical definition. Speaking exactly, every time that one of the terms to which we have referred has been employed, or any other of the innumerable series, a definition of it has at the same time been given, expressed, or understood, and each one of these definitions has differed somewhat from the others in some particular perhaps of very small importance such as tacit reference to some individual fact or other which thus became especially an object of attention and was raised to the position of a general type so it happens that not one of such definitions satisfies him who hears it nor does it satisfy even him who constructs it for the moment after this same individual finds himself face to face with a new case for which he recognizes that his definition is more or less insufficient ill-adapted and in need of remodeling it is necessary therefore to leave writers and speakers free to define the sublime or the comic the tragic or the humoristic on every occasion as they please and as may seem suitable to their purpose And if you insist upon obtaining an empirical definition of universal validity, we can but submit this one. The sublime, comic, tragic, humoristic, etc., is everything that is or will be so called by those who have employed or shall employ this word. EXAMPLES DEFINITIONS OF THE SUBLIME, THE COMIC, AND THE HUMORISTIC What is the sublime? the unexpected affirmation of an ultra-powerful moral force. That is one definition. But that other definition is equally good which also recognizes the sublime where the force which declares itself is an ultra-powerful but immoral and destructive will. Both remain vague and assume no precise form until they are applied to a concrete case which makes clear what is here meant by ultra-powerful and what by unexpected. They are quantitative concepts, but falsely quantitative, since there is no way of measuring them. They are, at bottom, metaphors, emphatic phrases, or logical tautologies. The humorous will be laughter mingled with tears, bitter laughter, the sudden passage from the comic to the tragic, and from the tragic to the comic, the comic romantic, the inverted sublime, war declared against every attempt at insincerity compassion which is ashamed to lament the mockery not of the fact but of the ideal itself and whatever else may better please according as it is desired to get a view of the physiognomy of this or that poet of this or that poem which is in its uniqueness its own definition and though momentary and circumscribed yet the sole adequate the comic has been defined as the displeasure arising from the perception of a deformity immediately followed by a greater pleasure arising from the relaxation of our physical forces, which were strained in anticipation of a perception whose importance was foreseen. While listening to a narrative which, for example, should describe the magnificent and heroic purpose of a definite person, we anticipate in imagination the occurrence of an action both heroic and magnificent and we prepare ourselves to receive it, by straining our psychic forces. If, however, in a moment, instead of the magnificent and heroic action which the premises and the tone of the narrative had led us to expect, by an unexpected change there occur a slight, mean, foolish action, unequal to our expectation, we have been deceived, and the recognition of the deceit brings with it an instant of displeasure." but this instant is as it were overcome by the one immediately following in which we are able to discard our strained attention to free ourselves from the provision of psychic energy accumulated and henceforth superfluous to feel ourselves reasonable and relieved of a burden this is the pleasure of the comic with its physiological equivalent laughter if the unpleasant fact that has occurred should painfully affect our interests pleasure would not arise, laughter would be at once choked, the psychic energy would be strained and overstrained by other more serious perceptions. If, on the other hand, such more serious perceptions do not arise, if the whole loss be limited to a slight deception of our foresight, then the supervening feeling of our psychic wealth affords ample compensation for this very slight displeasure. This, stated in a few words, is one of the most accurate modern definitions of the comic. It boasts of containing, justified or corrected, the manifold attempts to define the comic, from Hellenic antiquity to our own day. It includes Plato's dictum in the Philebus, and Aristotle's, which is more explicit. The latter looks upon the comic as an ugliness without pain, it contains the theory of hobbes who placed it in the feeling of individual superiority of kant who saw in it a relaxation of tension and those of other thinkers for whom it was the contrast between great and small between the finite and the infinite but on close observation the analysis and definition above given although most elaborate and rigorous in appearance yet enunciates characteristics which are applicable not only to the comic but to every spiritual process such as the succession of painful and agreeable moments and the satisfaction arising from the consciousness of force and of its free development the differentiation here given is that of quantitative determinations to which limits cannot be assigned they remain vague phrases attaining to some meaning from their reference to this or that single comic fact If such definitions be taken too seriously, there happens to them what Jean-Paul Richter said of all the definitions of the comic, namely, that their sole merit is to be themselves comic, and to produce in reality the fact which they vainly try to define logically. And who will ever determine logically the dividing line between the comic and the non-comic, between smiles and laughter, between smiling and gravity, who will cut into clearly divided parts that ever varying continuity into which life melts? Relations between those concepts and aesthetic concepts. The facts, classified as well as possible in the above quoted psychological concepts, bear no relation to the artistic fact beyond the generic that all of them, in so far as they designate the material of life, can be represented by art. And the other accidental relation that aesthetic facts also may sometimes enter into the processes described, as in the impression of the sublime that the work of a titanic artist such as Dante or Shakespeare may produce, and that of the comic produced by the effort of a dauber or of a scribbler. The process is external to the aesthetic fact in this case also, for the only feeling linked with that is the feeling of aesthetic value and disvalue of the beautiful and of the ugly. The dantesque farinata is aesthetically beautiful, and nothing but beautiful. If, in addition, the force of will of this personage appears sublime, or the expression that Dante gives him, by reason of his great genius, seems sublime by comparison with that of a less energetic poet, all this is not a matter for aesthetic consideration. This consists always, and only, in adequation to truth, That is, in beauty. End of chapter twelve. Recording by Lisa Reichert.